I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to a couple of openings of Scripture, Galatians chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, sometimes the uh, healing school is, um, um, well, I look at healing school a lot different now than I did when we first started. And uh, we've been uh, doing healing school every Sunday night for 10 years maybe, 10 or 11 years perhaps. Anyway, however long it's been, it's been a long time, however long it's been, uh, when we first started, I realized the need to lay a foundation for healing, and we did that for, for many, many years. But here over the last, well, not quite a year, but uh, getting close to it, I guess, uh, it seems that the Lord has uh, kind of given me a different direction for it <clears throat> in that um, before then I was intent on, on teaching a message concerning healing and, and so forth, and we still do that as the Lord leads us to. But now I really feel like healing school is more a matter of tweaking your faith, making rather than than um, trying to teach healing doctrine. At least on occasions, it seems like it's uh, uh, the plan of the Holy Ghost to to give you something to make minor adjustments to what you're already believing, and I think that has to do a lot with the crowd. If uh, if there are people here that uh, uh, our regular attenders and, and have been with us for a long time, then uh, we would hope that uh, that those people would be grounded and established in the in healing doctrine. Of course, if there are people from the outside that uh, that don't know about healing, then you always have to lay the same foundation again and again and again. But if it's just us, if it's just home folks, then um, then it's not necessary to tell you where sickness comes from every week. And uh, that Jesus took upon himself stripes to provide for your healing and, and so forth. I hope you understand what I'm saying. You don't ever get away from those things. But, um, but after somebody's established in, the, in healing doctrine, the truth of the word of God concerning healing, then, uh, then the devil really doesn't have a foothold to try to tell them that healing is not for them. But he does come in through minor points. And in smaller areas to raise questions in people's mind. And very often he's successful in keeping um, someone from receiving their healing. That's one of the reasons why we try to do the, uh, the question and answers. Because if you have questions about healing, then you can't really stand strong in faith to receive it. And um, And we've had varying degrees of success with the with the, the questions it's um, it's not the best way to do it but I don't know any other way to do it because very often the the real questions that somebody has and the real area that the enemy is working against them to try to hinder them from receiving their healing is not something people want to talk about in public so it makes it kind of difficult to do questions and answers and things like that in in every case and in every situation but having said that, if you ever have a question about healing or about your own situation, come ask me. Because very often it's just a matter of gaining that little piece of information that puts everything together and opens the door for you to be able to receive. Tonight, I, I, I don't have a message to share with you, but I do have something that I believe the Lord wants me to encourage you with. Would that be all right? Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 Paul has just begun speaking about sowing to the Spirit. 
Galatians 6, 9, he said, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Now he talks about in the next verse, verse 10, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially those in the household of faith. When we think about doing good, most people have the idea about good works, and uh, maybe it's just my background. Maybe you don't have the same background as I do. There are some positives to my experiences as a young believer, and there are some negatives. I'm not sure which one outweighs the other, to be honest with you. But we've all got our own experience. The, uh, my background is, is such that I came out of a Baptist church, denominational Baptist church, Southern Baptist. And as a result, everything was surrounded, uh, everything surrounded good works. I mean, even witnessing for Jesus was about doing works and handing out tracts and, and so on and so forth. And it was, uh, it was a, a constant thing. It was um, overt and covert as far as the message of good works is concerned. Well, thank God for good works. The Bible teaches good works. But here it's talking about doing well or doing good in such a way that if you don't faint, you'll reap. Well, reap what? What is the harvest from doing good works? Well, those are rewards that you stack up for yourself for when you get to heaven, aren't they? So when is he talking about receiving, or when is he talking about reaping, and when is he talking about fainting? I think that the good works he's talking about are doing well, that he speaks about in verse 9, has to do with being well-pleasing to God as far as your faith is concerned. And if that's true, certainly the principle is, whether it's specifically true that that's what Paul had in mind when he wrote this, the Holy Ghost inspired him to say it in such a way that applies to this. And for that reason, I want you to notice he said, and let us not be weary in well-doing. If we apply that principle to standing in faith, then he's telling us that we're all going to be faced with the feelings of weariness when it comes to believing God and the temptation to quit. It's just human nature. It's just the way the devil operates against us. But he said, don't be weary. Don't give in to the weariness. For in due season, thank God there's a due season for every one of us. For in due season, we shall reap if we faint not, if we don't give in. Now in Hebrews chapter 10, notice in verse 23, Paul is talking about who we are in Christ and the excellency of Jesus and so forth. And he says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Without wavering. James talks about wavering. James talks about the man that wavers is like a wave of the sea that's driven with the wind and tossed. In other words, he says one thing one day, he speaks the word of God one day. The next day he's talking about how he, what it looks like and how he feels. He talks healing one day and he talks sickness the next day. James goes on to say, I think it's in verse uh, 7 or 8 of chapter 1. He said, let not that man, the man that wavers, think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Well, Paul's saying the same thing in different language. He says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. Now, why would he have to tell us to hold fast? Why didn't he just say, you know, God always honors his word. And he deals with us according to the words that we speak. 
So it's up to you. You can say what you want to say. You can say when you want to say it. You say what you want to say when you want to say it. Why does he tell us to hold fast? Because he knows that the work of the devil is to try to wear us down. He uses time. He meaning the devil uses time against us. Because everybody wants instant results. And folks, I would submit to you, if we got instant results in everything that we've said or everything that we've prayed about, we'd all be spiritual giants. Everybody's faith would be great. Until the first test came along. Strength in faith comes not from the results or the quick, the, the, uh, the immediacy of the results. But that's so, so much of the time, that's the way people look at it. If you have strong faith, if you're a strong believer, then you get results real quick. Strong faith comes as a result of holding fast when you're tempted to give up. My message to you tonight is very simply, don't give up. Don't give up. I want you to turn back with me to the Old Testament. It tells the story of David. 1 Samuel chapter 30. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. You'll recognize part of the story, if not the whole whole thing. David is, you remember the story how that he was uh, anointed by Samuel the prophet to be the next king of Israel. That was about when David was 17, maybe 18 years old, something like that. Well, probably, probably 17. It wasn't too long after that that he had the, the big challenge with him between him and Goliath. He came out as the hero. But nobody, he couldn't tell anybody that he was anointed to be king. But he became great in the eyes of the people. And for a time he became great in Saul's eyes until Saul got jealous and then he began to made several attempts on David's life and David had to run for his life and live as a outcast. Now during that time that he was an outcast, remember he's anointed to be king. He's got the word of God, the promise of God that he would be the king of Israel, the next king of Israel after Saul. But it took almost 13 years for that promise to be realized. Most of that 13 years, David is running for his life. He's being persecuted by the guy that he's going to follow up or succeed. During that time, he builds an army, a group of people that are outcasts themselves for one reason or another, and he turns them into a group known as David's mighty men. These are men of valor. They're great warriors, and they're men of character as well. They took after David's example, became men of character also. Well, David uses part of this time, especially the latter part of these 13 years, when he's waiting for the promise of God to be realized in his life. He uses a portion of that time, the latter years, as I said, to fight Israel's battles undercover, guerrilla warfare tactics and so forth. This is talking about one of those occasions. He's been off taking care of some of Israel's enemies. Beginning in verse 1, 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1, And it came to pass, when David and his men were come to Ziklag, on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, 
and had smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire. Now, Ziklag was his headquarters city. That's where he would travel in and out of on his raids against Israel's enemies. So the Amalekites had invaded the city, burned it, and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, uh, Ahinoam, I guess, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord as God. Now, folks, I want you to realize we read these stories in, uh, in Scripture. And it's easy for us to just get the gist of the story and not put ourselves in the position of the people that are living it. For example, 13 years is a long time for God's promise to be realized. I doubt very seriously if David thought it was going to be 13 years when the promise was made. As a matter of fact, shortly thereafter, within a year probably, of when Samuel anointed him in secret, had to do it in secret because if Saul had found out about it, he would have killed uh, David, maybe tried to kill Samuel as well. At that point, Samuel had, or Saul had already been rejected of the Lord, so he was a loose cannon. You never knew what he was going to do. But within a year of David being anointed by Samuel in secret, he has the great victory over Goliath. And boy, everybody makes him their favorite, makes David their favorite. They start singing songs very soon thereafter. Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands. Don't you know David probably thought that he was on the fast track to becoming king? Don't you imagine that those circumstances lent themselves to David thinking, man, this isn't going to take any time at all. I may be king by the end of the year. I don't know how it's going to work. Don't know what's going to happen to Saul. But you can see God at work. Then Saul tries to strike him through with a spear. Throws a javelin in his head. Misses him and runs it into the wall. David's probably wondering, now how's that going to fit? Then he realizes he's got to run for his life and live on the run. While he's living on the run... He's probably wondering, now, how's this going to work? Because if something does happen to Saul, nobody's going to come to me. Nobody's going to look to me to be the king. Saul has sons of his own. There's a line of succession that you would expect to be followed, and David wasn't part of it. So what does he do? He holds fast to what God told him. And works on the behalf of his nation, the nation of Israel. He wins great victories. His life is always under threat, not only from Saul, but he's operating undercover among the Philistines. And at any time he could be uncovered for, for raiding, 
even some of the Philistine camps. And the king of Philistia should, can turn on him at any moment. Well, he goes on one of these raiding parties for the benefit of Israel. And he comes home, finds out everything that he has and everything that all of his people have have been taken. Wives, sons, and daughters are all taken captive. Now, if you put yourself in that situation, what would you imagine is going to happen to your wife and your daughter and your son? It'd be hard not to think about your wife and your daughter being raped by the enemy. It'd be hard not to think of your son being enslaved if he's kept alive. There's all kinds of thoughts that would come to your mind surrounding these circumstances. I'm sure there's a lot of thoughts that we can't even imagine that they were dealing with. And it was such a, such a crucial situation, such a heartbreaking situation, that David's mighty men, these mighty men of valor, men of character, they wanted to kill David. I don't know how that would have helped anything. But you know as well as I do that in times of grief, people strike out at whatever closest target there is. And I guess David was the closest target. But notice what it says. It said, but David encouraged himself in the Lord. Folks, he wanted to cry just like everybody else wanted to cry. He wanted somebody to blame just like everybody else wanted somebody to blame. His wives and daughters have been taken captive just like everybody else's have. But he encouraged himself in the Lord. What does that mean? He's got the perfect opportunity to sit down and quit. He's got the perfect opportunity to cry unto God and say you're the one that anointed me to be king if you hadn't none of this would have ever happened I wouldn't be chased by Saul I wouldn't be the enemy of the Amalekites I wouldn't have to be living on the run without a real home this is all you're doing father now I've made the best of it I've worked against the enemies of Israel. They're the enemies of your people, so they're your enemies too, God. And now look what's happened. My wives and my daughters have been taken captive. That would have been a perfect place to have the biggest pity party ever known to man and give up. But the Bible says that David encouraged himself in the Lord. Then he inquired of the Lord what to do. Should we pursue him? One of the things about David that's always been interesting to me, and it's, it's unlike anybody else that was king of Israel or the leader of the children of Israel, is that David had one of, if not the greatest army that was. But David didn't just haphazardly use that army when he had opportunity. He would always ask God, should I fight? Folks, there's a big difference between being in a fight and being a fighter. David was not a fighter, but he was in a lot of fights. He was not of the attitude that because of the strength and the might of the army that he had, the group of men that had surrounded him, he had just exact revenge and justice on anybody and everybody that he wanted to. 
He would always inquire of the Lord. So he asked. Lord, should I chase after these people? And the Lord said, yeah, go ahead. Now I'll deliver them under your hand. And that's exactly what happened. He went after the Amalekites. He recovered all the stuff that had been taken. He recovered all the captives. Everybody's wife, everybody's son, everybody's daughter was alive. In good shape. And he brings them back. He restores the families to each other. And he wins a great victory. Now, here's the important thing about the story, the most important thing about the story to me, and that is it's a matter of a couple of days, maybe even within one day, but certainly no more than than two or three, that David becomes king of Israel. David faced the greatest tragedy, the greatest opportunity to give up and quit just before the promise of God was realized after 13 years. Turn with, you, with me over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of fame of faith people. Paul writing to the Jews is trying to encourage them and explain to them how those people that the Jews revere are revered because of their faith and we should follow their example. So he talks about some people that we know of and he talks about some people we don't know of. He talks about in verse 2, by faith the elders obtained a good report. He begins speaking of Abel. In verse 4, by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts and by it he being dead yet speaks. Now, We don't know too much about Cain and Abel except the story of how Cain killed his brother. But we do know this. We do know that Cain was not willing to follow God's command, but Abel was. Abel was following the command to bring a sacrifice of blood. Cain just brought the fruit of the field, which was the work of his own hands. In other words, Abel gave up when it came to following God's instruction concerning the sacrifice. But Abel didn't. Now we don't know what made Cain give up. It's easy to think that this was the first sacrifice that they ever made, but I'm sure that's not the case. They're making sacrifices certainly every year, probably multiple times each year. And Cain gave up but not Abel. Talks about Enoch. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and that it was not, and he was not found because God had translated him for, before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. Wonder how many days Enoch walked with God. Wonder if there were ever any days that he got tired and just thought well I won't go walk with God today. Folks, these were humans just like you and me. You ever want to give up on your Bible reading or your daily prayer time? Enoch was faithful. He didn't give up. Talks about Noah. By faith, Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. 
by, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is of faith. There's indication, there's not a scripture that tells us specifically, but there's an indication that Noah was building the ark between 100 and 120 years. I wonder if there was any time during those 120 years and people are mocking him every day. Building a boat where there is no water. A huge boat where there is no water. Noah became the laughing stock of everybody in the country. Everybody that had everybody had heard about Noah, crazy Noah. Wonder if there was ever a point where he wanted to give up. Tells us why he didn't. He was moved with fear. In other words, he believed God's word about the flood coming to be true. So it kept him going, kept him motivated. But I wonder if he was ever tempted to quit. Don't you get tired of people making fun of you after a while? A hundred years of being the laughing stock of the world. That paid off. Thank God he wasn't weary and well-doing. The Bible talks about Abraham in his early days when he was called to go out into a place which he should after and receive for an inheritance obeyed and he went out not knowing where he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promises in a strange country dwelling in tabernacles or tents with Isaac and Jacob the heirs with him of the same promise. I wonder if Abraham ever got tired of living in a tent. I wonder if he ever got tired of walking with God towards some strange land before he got there. He went a long way from where he was, early Chaldees, to the promised land, the Canaan land. It was a long way. I wonder if he got tired on that journey. I wonder if he wondered anywhere along the way, is this really worth it? Or I wonder if he wondered anywhere along the way, did God really appear to me? Did I really see him? Did I really hear from him? Now, folks, these are the things that the devil questions, brings questions about in my mind. Doesn't he do the same with you? Did God really say that? Or did you just imagine it? I wonder if Abraham had to deal with that. Even after Abraham had walked with God for many, many years, he's still living in a tent. I wonder if that was his life plan when he was a young man. Talks about Sarah receiving strength to conceive seed. I wonder if she got tired of following a guy who said he had a promise from God for a child and went 25 years without that promise being realized. Talks further about Moses. I wonder if Moses ever got tired of being the leader of the children of Israel. God certainly got tired of Israel during the time Moses was the leader. And there was an occasion where God said, get back, Moses, stand out of the way. I'm going to wipe these people out and start over with you. That's pretty heady stuff. I'm going to be the... the, the the originator of a group of a new people on the earth. And they've got to be better than the group I've got. 
Moses never gave up. It goes on and tells us about other people. Verse 32, and it said, And what shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon. We know about Gideon. Bless his heart. He quit before he ever got started. When God found him, when the angel found him, he had quit. But he became a mighty man. He became somebody that wouldn't give up. Tells us of Barak. We have no idea who Barak is. I wish his name was something else. But we don't have any idea what he, who he was. And since we don't know who he was, we certainly don't know what he did. But I can tell you this. If he was human, he was tempted to quit. Tells us of Samson. Samson had his issues, didn't he? But God counted him faithful. Because even though he was in and out of the will of God and even in and out of the plan that God had for his life, he finished strong. It tells us of Jephthah. We don't know who he was either or what he did. But like I said with Barak, if he was human, he was tempted to quit. If he was human, then there were days where he became tired of following whatever God had told him to do. Of David also, we talked about him a little bit, and Samuel and the prophets. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to, fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead and raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Folks, I want you to realize every one of these people Every one of these victories that the Bible talks about being won were won through people who were at some time tired and at the point of giving up. Just like you might be. Tells us of the people that didn't accept their deliverance. In the last part of verse 35, others were tortured not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. That would make you want to give up, wouldn't it? I mean, we think we know what hard times are. Nobody's beaten us. Nobody's scourged us. Nobody's thrown us in jail. They were stoned. If you knew you were facing stoning, that would be a good place to give up, wouldn't it? They were sawn asunder. In all of these situations, people were given the opportunity to recant. According to the best historical evidence we've got. It's not that people were just taken and said, okay, you're a Christian, we're going to cut you in half. It was more a matter of renounce Jesus. Renounce your faith in Jesus and you can escape being cut in half. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. Now notice that. They were stoned, that sounds pretty serious. They were cut in half, sawn asunder. We know that's serious. They were tempted. 
Notice how the Bible puts temptation. Just simple temptation right there in the middle of the other things. They were tempted. This speaks of their opportunity to recant, renounce their faith in Jesus, and escape the punishment that they were facing. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, that means they didn't give up, received not the promise. Now that's tough. You hold out and you still don't receive the promise. It's counted to your credit spiritually, but you didn't reap the earthly rewards. God having provided something better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Chapter 12. Wherefore, to this end, these people were examples for us, facing the severest of situations, the same feelings, the same emotions, the same temptations to quit as you and I face. Only magnified hundreds of times, perhaps. Wherefore, seeing we also are accomplished about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. What does the run with patience mean? It means no matter how you feel, keep going. No matter how long it's been, keep going. No matter how bad you hurt, keep going. That's what running with patience means. It means holding fast the profession of your faith without wavering because God is faithful who promised. How are we going to do that, Pastor Mike? Verse 2, looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. The reason we get tired is because we get our eyes off him. The reason we give in to temptation and begin to complain or at least want to complain is because we get our eyes off of him. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Don't give up. Your answer is just around the corner. And I don't know how long around I don't know how long the corner is, maybe a long block. But your answer is just around the corner. You keep taking step after step after step. With each step, your answer is one step closer. Don't give up. Don't be weary in well-doing. No matter how it feels, no matter how long it's been, no matter how impossible it looks, don't give up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are faithful who promised. We thank you, Father, that that is a sure foundation. Your word, your promise to us is a sure foundation for us to live by. Thank you, Father, that you love us as much or more than any and all of these people that are listed in Scripture. You saw them through. You'll see us through too. Therefore, Father, we declare that we were healed by the stripes of Jesus. By faith, we believe we receive our healing. No matter what it looks like, no matter how we feel, 
No matter what the doctor's report is. No matter anything else. We believe we receive our healing. And we thank you Lord that you see to it that we have it. That you personally raise us up. According to your word. Thank you Lord Jesus for what you suffered on our behalf. Thank you for being faithful to watch over your word to perform it in our lives. We love you Lord. We worship you. We magnify you for your goodness. Forgive us, Lord, for our weakness when we've given in to complaints, given in to the circumstance. We commit to you, Lord. We'll keep going. We'll run with patience the race that's set before us. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that healing is ours. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, that's all I got. Thank you for being with us.